0: Hi there. Just before we get started, this is just a quick reminder that our 2022 listener survey is out. We're interested in knowing what you thought of 2022 and how it might have changed your political views, as well as knowing what you'd like to see from us in 2023. So the survey is up until the 21st of December. So if you can answer before then, that would be fantastic. Uh, we'd greatly appreciate it if you took uh, those five minutes just to answer that. Anyway, on with the show. Hello, dear listeners, this is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. This is Alex Hokely. We're recording this on Sunday, the 27th of November, and I'm, as usual, with Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare. Hello. Hey. Hi. So, um, the left. Let's talk about the left. One of the starting points of this podcast, obviously, is that the end of history was the defeat of the working class and that the end of the end of history is not necessarily its return or some new engine of history returning or emerging, uh, but merely the collapse of the old. But that question of what is the left remains um, and actually imposes itself quite often. How do we think of the left as having declined, as having suffered defeat, a political defeat, a historical defeat even, or that it has even died? So this is a question which is going to underlie um, what we're about to discuss right now. Um, but just before we get started and actually introduce what we're specifically talking about, guys, what is your understanding of, of this debate and its implications?
1: Well, I think the probably the first thing to say that the left and the working class, those two things are not the same. I mean, there's a lot of, um, <clears throat> I think a lot of, debate and discussion over what the left means and who has the right to appropriate this this language to kind of wear these um these clothes that have been part of the I'm extending this metaphor but been part of politics um since you know since the time of the French Revolution. Um I mean I guess the the probably one thing to say is that I was part of a collection, the Conformist Rebellion, which was subtitled, you know, Marxist critiques of the left. So I would probably say that there is something different between the left and marxism and that's an important distinction to make um so yeah i think it's you still can talk of of the left though and who it refers to who's trying to appropriate this label and and what they think it it means i've got i've got more comments on this but we can get into these in in the course of the the article yeah i'm not going to give you a definition because it's not you know something so easy to define the left
2: yeah i would agree with george there is a tendency i think to take um particularly when talking about the 20th century ma- as to take marxism as the entirety of the left and it's a difficult you know it's a difficult question to approach because anyone who feels even vaguely kind of left of center i think um wants to make a claim to their left right as opposed to yeah um and their left being the kind of the um the authentic left and obviously that skews the nature of how you think and talk about the overall question um but i mean you know as george indicated i mean if you take the origin of the left as sitting on the left hand side of the king in the um in the const- the early kind of um constitutional monarchy phase of the french revolution then in the S- um national assembly estates general all that then you know the left um is something which is Embedded in modern politics, um, but is not the same thing as the organised working class. So I think the left is something which is um, kind of has been organically connected to um, questions of working class power and working class revolt over the last two hundred or so years. But it's not the same thing as it. And I think that, in fact, is you know very evident in Western politics at the moment. That separation, and it's not an original observation. I mean, because, you know, I think even kind of very, um, you know, uh, run of the mill kind of political scientists understand uh, in discussing the switch of working class voters away from old social democratic parties to insurgent populists or to right wing parties, you know, they're recognizing that separation.
0: Yeah, very good, um, important stuff to to note as we start off. And the question of the left's connection to socialism or to revolution is also something that we'll be returning to. So let me tell you very specifically um, what we're going to be talking about. Uh, there is a, a a long article out in the New Left Review in the September-October 2022 issues, very recently, by Jürgen Therborn. Um It's a synoptic analysis of where the left is, globally speaking, almost a quarter of the way into the 20th century. So Therborn, if you're not familiar, is a Swedish Marxian sociologist. Um,
2: 21st century, Alex. You see, you're already getting your dates confused. Oh, indeed! Yeah, nearly a quarter of the way into the twenty-first century. Luckily, not the twentieth century.
0: (laughs) Things would be so so much simpler then, (laughs) Um, because we would have all this uh, weight of historical knowledge to inform what we should do um, if we were back in nineteen twenty-two rather than uh, twenty. One twenty-two. Jesus, I don't I can't even say dates. Anyway, um, let's proceed. Uh, Therborn is a Swedish Marxian sociologist. He was born in 1941, which uh, means that he was in his 20s throughout the 1960s, which is, um, I think, an important fact to note. He's associated uh, with the New Left that emerged in that period, as well as with, uh, quote-unquote, post-Marxism. So this piece is published in the New Left Review, um, It's called The World and the Left, um, and it's one of the journal's occasional big picture balance sheets. Um, So we're discussing it because we believe it to be important in that regard, rather than necessarily it being good, though we'll evaluate that as as we go through. Um, And we discuss the themes associated with the state of the left today, one that Therborn tries to provide in terms of its ideas, its strategy, and its practice. Now, one more thing about the piece in terms of setting it up, Uh, the piece presents a balance sheet, firstly, of the 20th century, um, looking and then goes on to look at the innovations on the left throughout the 1990s, 2000s and 2010s. And it concludes by examining the state of play globally, dedicating quite a lot of space, actually, to South America. To South Africa, to India, as well as obviously to the North Atlantic. Um, so it's quite a it's quite a hefty piece. I mean, it's fifty one pages. So we're not going to be discussing everything. We're going to try to pull out the big themes, um, and you can already hint guess what they are because it's the stuff that we've already been talking about. Now, just one little terminological thing before we proceed. Uh, we're going to call the New Left in capital letters, the New Left. That should refer to the 1960s, uh, you know, the New Left that emerged in the 1960s as um, as a sort of anti-Stalinist um, tendency on the left. And when we're talking about the left today um, or the left from the 1990s onwards, we could maybe... Agree to call it the millennial left. Not, not that it's just composed of millennials, but effectively, um, the 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 lefts that have existed from the end of history through to today. Um, or alternatively, the post Cold War left. I only say that because in the piece, Thereborn often refers to the new left, meaning the contemporary left, and not his old <laughs> new left from the nineteen sixties. So just for uh to avoid any confusion, the new left that. Kind of 1968 revolt, um, the millennial left. That's what's going on in the 90s, 2000s, and uh, you know up to today. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Otherwise, it's
1: the the old new left and and the new new left, which is yeah, well, you know yeah. it, it makes sense, but it's just a bit
0: ugly, isn't it? A yeah. Bit confusing. So, um, Thirborn makes a, an important or um, you know a kind of confident assertion and attempt to synthesize. What the 20th century was as a way of starting off um, this exploration of the 21st century left it says the 20th 20th century uh, was characterized by two dialectics. Firstly, industrial capitalism, and it's a dialectic because it birthed and strengthened its opponent, the industrial working class. And secondly, capitalist colonialism, which likewise birthed and strengthened its opponent, which is to say, anti-colonial movements. These uh, two dialectics drove uh, the politics of the 20th century, but at the end of it, we can look back and say, um, as Therborn does, that the industrial class dialectic described in capital ended as welfare states within the confines of capitalism. Nor did the great revolutions carry their people to socialism or communism in the Marxian sense. The need to survive by developmentalism and the brutalizing consequences of the counter-revolutionary civil wars overtook the socialist project. Nor did the post-colonial states become beacons of popular freedom, justice, and equality. Um, so that's obviously quite a, a, a gloomy conclusion on w- what the 20th century gave us, um, and the pro- versus the promises that it held. Do we agree? I guess with just very basically with this sort of balance sheet of the 20th century. Well, I think it's not just gloomy. It's
1: possibly the most gloomy position that you can possibly take because it's not just that the. Um, you know the for the historical forces of the left or progress or whatever were defeated in the 20th century. Is that the conditions that create those forces no longer exist? So, it's a um, I would say a maximally pessimistic um position because Thurborn contrasts the 20th and the 21st century by saying that you know industrial capitalism this, as you said, Alex, it it's, it bursts and strengthens this exploited part, this kind of you know in the old. Um, Way of putting things, you know, the, the grave diggers are created for capitalism, but in the twenty first century, that doesn't happen. You have this new digital financial capitalism, which doesn't produce or develop its own adversaries. So, yeah. it's it's um to make that that comparison, I think it it sort of it you know obviously grounds the whole essay, but I think it is just worth um like being clear that this is a it's an extremely pessimistic um position because you no longer have this this kind of underlying historical dynamic of producing opponents to or adversaries within a system they have to come from outside somewhere so yeah. i mean we can kind of pick up some of the consequences of this but i think it's just worth saying it starts on a pretty um <laughs> pretty downbeat note it's not just defeat but the poss- it, but the impossibility for the conditions of um struggle so there you go Bill.
2: yeah i I mean, I suppose I'd say a few things. I would agree with a lot of what George said, and I guess I would add a couple of things. I um, don't know what's happening at this podcast—an um, uh, unusual outbreak of consensus. But or <laughs> anyway, um, on this question, I would add a few things. I suppose the—I uh, think he gives a kind of a mixed understand. I mean, you know, it's an intensely kind of complicated. Um, question of uh di- you know what is dialectics and how meaningful is it i think he gives a kind of a mixed um or a kind of uneven account of them he makes the point that it's you know kind of it's more than simply the logic of unintended consequences um and but I, on the other hand i think he misses some elements and i don't really think um such as you know say i don't know just the old kind of classical um leninist understanding of dialectics as involving the unity of opposites um and development through contradiction but the it's not to say that i disagree with his point about the you know broadly speaking there is the dialectic of industrial capitalism and um colonial capitalist colonialism that they end up developing their own um challenges and strengthening their own challenges through the process of their own development but i don't think that outlook sits easily with the idea of a balance sheet you know and this is kind of my whole part of the frustrating aspect of the whole essay is the balance sheet approach you know where you kind of um oh you know so reagan kind of Ronald reagan crushes the um the strikers in America, the um, air traffic controllers. But on the other hand, you know, um, an indigenous trade unionist activist gets selected in some obscure poor country. You know, so it kind of you have tick here and tick there. And this kind of approach of um, piling things in one pan and piling things in the other and seeing, you know, where which is, you know, which is weighted more to which side, it doesn't seem. I mean, you know, it's not to say that it's necessarily an illeg- illegitimate approach. I don't. I just don't think it, it kind of sits easily with dialectics. The kind yeah, of um, I, keeping score and tallying doesn't seem to me to really be dialectical at all.
0: No, I, I, it's actually interesting because I, I had the similar impression reading it because the the kind of introductory section of the of the article is quite dialectical um and i think it it provides exactly that sort of description that i that i did in summing up uh, Therborn's argument with regard to the 20th century but then it goes on uh to provide this sort of balance sheet approach of weighting things up and going well this happened and then that happened and this was good and this was bad um rather than kind of working it through and looking at it kind of the you know kind of uh, the contradictory workings of of development so um I, yeah. I agree and we're going to come on to some of that sort of more balanced sheety aspects in terms of um, or in, rather in relation to how thairborn analyzes an- and evaluates the 21st century left um but it, i think I, um it's worth on. it's worth just quickly
1: saying that you know to use a more contemporary um reference that it's not really a balance sheet it's more of a form table you kind of have these wins draws loses um over the course of a of a world historical season um it is the world cup we have avoided talking about this on the podcast but I did want to bring that that in because that's actually then um yeah brings in this idea that it's over over time as as well and so you do get the, the sense it, it is a kind of piling up of all these like small pieces and then you see which ones weighs more. There's one, one way to look at it, but it, another way is that it's essentially a loss of, you know, loss of form for the left. It started off with some, some kind of some big victories, some close victories in the course of the 20, 20th century, and then maybe, um, lost a few key players. And now it's, you know, it's kind of <clears throat> form has really, has really tanked, but, you know, they say form is, form is temporary class
0: is permanent, but anyway, I just wanted to, <laughs> Which is
1: good. to yeah, throw the, that. The, the in working the...
0: class is permanent. Yeah, maybe. Um, so, um, moving this forward because that, that all refers to the 20th century or certainly up to let's say 1989 moving into a kind of the later period um there were notes the impasse and exhaustion of both uh the organized working class and of um you know the kind of Soviet model um, and effectively um you know declares to a certain extent, Uh, the impasse and exhaustion of the left. Um, As George has already noted, that the new um, sort of motive forces, the financial and digital capitalism, don't seem to birth new opponents, not in the way that industrial capitalism did. But despite all that, um, Thereborn says, and this I think we agree with, regular listeners will know, um, that neoliberalism is ending. Um, effectively, as a consequence of the global financial crisis, of increasing geopolitical competition leading to protectionism, and COVID, and the whole management of that um, has uh, created a situation in which there uh, neoliberalism might live on, um, but purely in zombie form. It lacks all vigor and and intellectual authority. I, what I wonder in reading this is um, whether, in writing neoliberalism's eulogy, whether Thorbjorn underplays. The world historic importance of neoliberalism and the neoliberal period because the, the way he precisely phrases it is that it's a hinge between the 20th and the 21st centuries so beginning with the oil uh, crisis of the 19 uh, of the 1970s um and you know really emerging politically uh, in 1979 1980 all the way up to let's say 2020 um for him though it's an interlude. So he, I mean, one of the one of the subheadings in the in the article is a neoliberal interlude. Is you right in portraying it as an interlude? It seems to me to suggest that things return to a sort of the status quo ante after neoliberalism.
2: Mm,
1: I I I mean, we we don't I think all entirely agree on the future or the death of neoliberalism, but that's you know <clears throat> that's a separate point. But I, I'm not sure. I kind of I think the logic of his argument is like there is a really sp- strict d- difference between the twenty, the 20th and the 21st century the 20th century you know just to repeat this this was the those dialectics of industrial capitalism and, and colonialism and the 21st century is is very differently structured historically so it's about these legacies of um of the 20th century it's just like gigantic historical hangover of <clears throat> you know war and um all these other kind of climate change, inequality, all these other sort of negative things which happened in the 20th century. So there has to be, I mean, either you have a kind of an abrupt or a a gradual transition between these two different sorts of historical periods um, for for Thurborn in, in his article. But I don't, I mean, I don't know if he does sort of underplay, like if this is really is what happened, then this is a crucial, a crucial period. And I think, Though he he doesn't really explain why and how these um particularly the dialectic of industrial capitalism, I don't think he explains sort of why this dialectic finished, what that means, and why that led to the to the things that he says happened in the 21st century. Because presumably this neoliberal period was if this was the closing of these two like dialectics that structured a whole century, there would have been them,
0: you know, you would be able to to kind of see how this happened and it would be a crucial period. I guess my, my issue is more or to kind of clarify, it's that it it seems to um suggest that Therborn sees a continuity between the left of um the period in which he um came of age, for example, from the 60s onwards, um, through to today. And so you have this neoliberal period of retreat for the left, um, of various defeats. But it seems to, um, you know, conclude ultimately on, you know, exhaustion or impasse rather than the left having uh, faced some sort of a greater historic defeat. Um, and also more specifically, actually, rather than the left, because George, you were right to, spec- uh, to to insist on the difference between the two, but the the the, the, the global historic defeat of the working class, the workers movement, um, you know, in the 1980s. And I think that, um that then strangely gets underplayed by his treatment of neoliberalism as this sort of bad period um which ended these dialectics but the left train kind of keeps moving on and i think i would probably urge a, a more serious reckoning with i guess what the left is as a consequence uh okay yeah no
1: i think um, i think i do agree with that because yeah I, I, you can't have a consistent um i mean he does try and draw parallels and there's a great table in this um in this article and listeners will know that i am a i'm a fan of tables um and it you know it does suggest some very clear consistencies or or st- structural similarities between the left in these two periods the 20th and 21st century but yeah alex i do take your point if if this is a you know such a crucial hinge then there should be differences <clears throat> you shouldn't say that these are essentially the same thing but with slightly different orientation instead it should be
0: they're like chalk and cheese, twenty first and twenty first century um, lefts. Left. And, and but and I think I mean to go to go to extend that further, I think that it's precisely that continuity which allows him to do his balance sheet approach. So like, okay, the left that we used to know in the 20th century uh, is no longer um, exactly in the the same form, precisely because, you know, the end of colonialism and, you know, uh, deindustrialization and so on. So you don't have the the working class taking the same form that it used to. Um, But basically, we can just look at how the left is doing now. Okay, maybe it's a little bit more positive in certain places, a little bit more negative here Um, rather than working through what was uh, a much more epochal kind of breaking point uh, represented by 1989. Yeah, no, I agree. So, I mean, it's actually interesting. And and Phil, I remember you uh, raising an eyebrow at this um, because in very much in relation to this, Therborn writes uh, in, in the article and refers to a Perry Anderson essay in the year 2000, um which an article which has a similar ambition i guess to to what derrbon does here and uh, he writes a perry anderson concluded that the necessary starting point for a realistic left was a lucid recognition of historical defeat anderson continues little short of a slump of interwar proportions would be capable of shaking the parameters of the current consensus um i i mean i, I agree with anderson's take and um, it actually, I guess, that sort of uh, world historic slump of interwar proportions eventually did come to pass um, with the global financial crisis and its aftermath. So, does this suggest um, perhaps a, a greater optimism even than what Perry Anderson, um, than what Perry, the position that Perry Anderson took and that Therborn tries to back up um, from from back then?
2: I think I mean he is more I think Thurburn is certainly more optimistic. Um and he tries to re-characterize, I mean, his whole thrust of the argument is to re-characterize what Anderson describes as defeat. He seeks to redescribe it as impasse. And again, I suppose it you know, it depends on what in which registers you're talking. So the kind of left that Thurban kind of um sees as having made strides and which he kind of grants his optimism on is the social movement left, you know, which met in Porto Alegre, which Lula gave their little sandbox to play with um, and which the NGO kind of, you know, the NGO left, the kind of the post-party party left, um, kind of flourished in, you know, they kind of, they took an enormous, um, they made an enormous, uh, an enormous, um, Political hay out of that particular era of neoliberal of neoliberal globalization, but that doesn't seem you know to kind of um, I would read that very differently you know. So the success of the NGO left seems to me to be the defeat of um, a left based around organized labor.
0: For sure. And so though, I think though, though it's important to note that that rather predates. The global financial crisis, and Anderson, um, you know, says that the condition for um, for shaking the parameters of the current consensus would precisely be um, this slump of interwar proportions, which then does come to pass, and then then makes us reexamine what the conditions of possibility for a left are today, um, even if we have this lucid recognition of historical defeat of 1989.
2: Yeah. So again, though, I suppose uh, what I'm trying to get across is that the um, I think, you know, why Anderson says defeat and why fairborn kind of says impasse is because there's some to some degree they're talking in different registers. Um, so Anderson is more, I think, rooted in, you know, kind of a classical more Marxian understanding of the left kind of hinging around the fate of organized labor, whereas Thurburn is kind of talking in broader terms. Mm. And so it allows them to kind of characterize it differently. I'm not sure that the, you know, so as significant as the 2008 great financial crash was, I'm not sure it is actually a slump um, on the level of interwar proportions to, you know, use Anderson's terms. Um, And in fact, precisely the reason that they were able to respond with, you know, I mean, partly they drowned the world in money right in response to it and the reason they had such um uh, kind of uh, room for political maneuver was partly because of the absence of any organized challenge from below putting pressure on yeah. them so that's also it's not you know i think it's um again it's not so easy to imagine that an into you know like a slump even on a huge kind of global scale can act as a dozox machina to suddenly reset, you know, the coordinates within which everybody operates because it was also the inheritance of defeat of a defeated left that meant that they were able to um, respond in a particular way and that they could respond in ways in which, um, you know, kind of existing ruling elites were able to escape with very little accountability and escape unscathed in many ways from the effects of um the financial crash.
0: Yeah, though I would say that certainly the global financial crisis did reconfigure certain parameters, important ones. I mean, the whole premise of this podcast is that it did. Um, But of course, yeah, it's not a deus ex machina, which births a strong left or a workers movement. Um, Now, I I think this does hint at something that Thirborn might miss out, which is a kind of dialectic internal to the left. Now, that's pretty a pretty opaque way of putting it. So let me um, refer something to what, something that he argues with regard to 1968, which he calls a generational cultural revolt, um, something that was not connected to the two main dialectics of the 20th century. It's something that merely coincided with them. So, you know, you, for example, you had strikes and workplace occupations and occup- opposition to the Vietnam Wars. But what happened with the emergence of the new left in, and the counterculture as well in the, in the 1960s was something that was, as he puts it, a generational cultural revolt, um, and I think I would agree with that. And I think I would refer listeners to uh, the generation series that we've done, particularly episode, the third episode on the boomers um, for a much more in-depth exploration of um, of what the 1960s actually was, what that generational change was, as well as an episode we did with Catherine new a little while back called The Ghosts of 1968. Um, and both of these are linked in the show notes, um, because I think that that understanding of what the new left was and what its legacies are and how specifically the the contemporary left the millennial left stands in relation to that is really important um so I, I wonder you know whether the you know new left is effectively continuous with the contemporary left or and whether it or or rather that both of those left the left since the 1960s maybe has to a certain extent been a story of um, cultural and generational change more than it has been um, something which uh, I guess is, is is integral to a kind of structural contradiction within capitalism to put it in kind of grand terms
2: I think you're right I mean I think he does underestimate that kind of internal dialectic I'd frame it slightly differently though I think both perhaps to what you said and also to what third one says the reason the fact that it was a cultural generational revolt was a symptom of its political failure, not, um, a symptom of its, uh, you know, of its intrinsic kind of, um, character or of its success. Right. So I think that was, you know, and I mean, it did, you know, it did kind of, uh, the revolt of the late sixties did anticipate and lay the ground for in places like France, but also Italy and elsewhere, it laid the ground for the, um kind of industrial conflicts and workplace militancy of the 70s so i mean yeah it wasn't accidental that it came at the end of the long post-war boom right so i mean all of those things are significant but the fact that it became like you say generational like i said i mean it seems to me that is a failure to um a failure to reckon with itself um and the fact that it you know politically failed to overcome the inheritance i suppose of the um of the of the the Left of the first half of the twentieth century.
0: So let me rephrase it to see if I've understood, and then George can respond. That effectively the 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 new left was not necessarily always from the start a generational and cultural revolt, but it it became that because as a consequence of its failures, that its legacy was precisely that kind of yeah it was a kind of counterculture and and um, the yeah, initiation rather... these cycles of generational kind of conflict.
2: Yeah, or rather that it failed to rise, to rise above it. So, I mean, it would obviously always to some degree be conditioned by emerging in the kind of relative affluence of the post-war period. Um, in the period, you know, that period of demographic transformation um, and the slow kind of disintegration of the post-war order, but it didn't rise above that. So that is this, you know, which it always remained kind of um, shaped and conditioned by it. At least that'd be my take on it anyway
1: yeah i think there's um there are some continuities between that generational aspect and and the millennial left today or at least in some parts of the world the you know corbinism there's there's a one analysis of this that it's generation or or was or whatever generation left that there is a specific um generation that has a consciousness of its uh differences in particularly and a, this is not the same as 68, particularly in terms of, I guess, um, ability to get on the housing market and job prospects and, and over-education and things like this. I think the, you know, the, the revolts of 68 were of a, of a different character than that, but there certainly was always in both cases a pretty strong generational um, young versus old um, dynamic there. But I think that, yeah, I think the, the overall point that the, to a certain extent, you might say the left tends to fight the last battle. And to the extent that they the, like, the left is an identity which can be you know shared by a large group of people and and there is a continuity in left struggles there will be this tendency to to kind of um partly shape shape a political response in in order to the to the last failure it's like uh to extent to use another football analogy you set up the your formation against the team you played last and so you're always you're always one one game behind um sometimes it will work anyway but sometimes you'll be um um, outmaneuver tactically because your 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 uh, tactics are obsolete.
0: Well, okay. and and this would be the the case here of, for example, the the, the Western left continuing to fight old battles, like continuing to um, fight against the patriarchy, which is no longer there. For example, um, and so th- this brings us on actually to Fairbourn's analysis and balance sheet of the contemporary left, or the millennial left, or the post Cold War left. Um, So there one goes through trying to identify innovations, and he kind of breaks this down into three different um, moments or movements of the left, which he finds notable since the end of the Cold War. The first is the alter globalization movement. Um, Phil has already referred to the World Social Forum, which exemplifies this, um, which, you know, sought to bring together the nonviolent left from around the world. um, And, you know, notably was founded by a Catholic and an ethical businessman, which I guess uh, hints a little bit to a certain moralism that that uh, that underpins that. Um, climate protest, he talks uh, at some length about Fridays for the future, um, even though he concedes that its middle class base leads green parties to towards the center necessarily. Um, but you know, he he still remarks upon the energy um, and the kind of momentum behind the climate uh, cl- climate protests. And then, thirdly, new world socialism. So this refers um, principally to the sort of initial pink wave, the the experiments uh, initiated by Chavez in Venezuela, Morales in Bolivia, as well as uh, Bernie Sanders. And so, I I mean, you know, reading this, it didn't exactly um, set the heart alight. Uh, is this a fair summary of of the millennial left or the post cold war left in terms of what its um primary contributions have been
1: well if if it is then it's i guess not not particularly um yeah heart uh, heart uh, igniting as as you put it um i think there are i think one of the um benefits of of this article is it does attempt to like take a massive like um Perry Anderson's uh, 20, 2000 article, which I can't, I can't remember what it, what it's called, but it's a, and you know, very similar, I should have looked that up actually Um, very similar sort of attempt to just get everything, everything in the world and put it into a, a framework. And that's often, you know, often leads to you missing out some details and you don't want to be one of those kind of details people who's like, Oh, but what about this thing? It doesn't really fit in. Um, Yeah. I think though it's, it's, th- those three things kind of um, alter globalization, climate, New World Socialism. Those seem to be three of the the leading kind of aspects of um, this kind of twenty first century left.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is the part that one of the parts of the piece I found the most frustrating and annoying. Um, and someone that can kind of quote Chavez and revolutionary democracy with a straight face, or see Greta Thunberg as um, you know, hold, hold her aloft as uh, as a kind of exemplar of um, of radicalism and protest again I find it difficult to take that seriously he's not wrong in terms of identifying you know where the um the core base lies in of that um post-cold War left the, the element you had mentioned though is the um the parties the Revival of um parties you know he talks about the DSA Corbynism, and so on so I mean I guess we'll come to that you know um, why why, why is this
1: why is this frustrating for you I don't I don't really understand I mean do you think he's like, do you think he's wrong about these are the key kind of parts of the post-Cold War not that, left?
2: Not that he's wrong about identifying the core kind of groups and constituencies, but that he um, endorses them so unproblematically. You know, when he talks about um, the you know Bolivian left endorsing, whenever I hear Pachamama, I want to reach for my fracking drill, like um, the patronizing contempt for indigenous politics um, the endorsement of the, you know, what is kind of just classic Latin American populism, riding a commodity boom, riding the commodity boom of Chinese industrialization and turning that into some great stride forward for, you know, the left at the global level. It just, it's such, it's such weak So
0: Well, but I guess the, the I think that's n- less there born than, 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 uh, than a reflection of, oh, sorry, it's because you cut well, out. So I thought you had finished.
2: No, so it's, um, again i mean it's this balance sheet approach but it's also because he consistently from you know and he does this across the 20th century and so inevitably it feeds through into his account of the 21st he presents um he presents setbacks and diversions and sops as if they were gains you know he consistently does this and so inevitably like you know he will be he will um he will get in line Behind the likes of the Thurnberg protests, he will um, get excited about Chavez's kind of ridiculous posturing, populist posturing, and you know, so it's not, it's not, um, it's not surprising.
0: I mean, you know, to play devil's advocate somewhat because I also didn't, I didn't, yeah, I, I thought also Thurnburg was obviously very uncritical, but, um, you know, it was only, it would only have been the left who would have been able to do what Morales has done in Bolivia, which is, um, to actually. Kind of raise living standards and reduce inequality, um, of course. And he notes that a contradiction there with that for all the talk of pachamama and um, indigenous politics and whatnot, um, that a lot of indigenous have protested against um, against the Morales government because of its extractivism, because it's been developmentalist. So. Um, is this some great shining light for the rest of the world, or some um, you know solution for for everyone? Uh, no, but it represents a, a a certain kind of gain relative to um, to to what the alternative yeah, for would be. What,
2: been. what is, I don't know that it is such a great gain relative to the alternative. You know, like. There was a large commodity boom and there would have been growth in Latin America being, you know, kind of dominated by export based economies. Now, there might have been less redistribution had there not been governments of this particular kind of ideological stripe in power. Um, But it doesn't seem, you know, this kind of, oh, well, on the one hand, you know, Morales kind of um, improved living standards. And on the other hand, he talked about Pachamama. That doesn't seem to me like meaningful. You know, you've got to... um, I think you've got to there's no reason not to criticize the kind of this rather than celebrating this patronizing indigenous politics he could criticize it and you know recognize the fact of um, that the morales government managed to combine redistribution and economic growth you know
1: well maybe if you don't like this this stuff that he presents then you're not on the left maybe it's time to finally accept your position as a as a right wing crank and that's fine we will you will still be allowed on the podcast that's okay. We're friends here. We can disagree. But no, um, I mean, it's of a, have got a, it's kind of a semi-serious point in there that like, I mean, I don't know. It, it didn't, this didn't frustrate me that much. This, this art, this article, because I guess, you know, this is what you're sort of expecting to see is a celebration of these things, which I think make up some of the key kind of intellectual uh, load stars. If that's, if I'm using that word correctly of the contemporary left. I mean, Maybe I have yeah, lower expectations. You mistake me.
2: You, mis- you mistake me though, George. I'm frustrated because these are not the good things to endorse, ris- irrespective of where whether one is on the left or anywhere else for that matter. I mean, my, you know, like obviously, I want the people of uh, Bolivia to enjoy kind of Western standards of living and to flourish in um, freedom and democracy as everybody else, right? So that is the source of my frustration. It's not because I'm, um, not because you know I'm. Morales didn't fulfil the program that I drew up for Bolivia.
0: So, um, moving on, because also the, the, the kind of more fundamental questions of the left are are incoming, um, but. Third, third one goes on to analyze these across several axes, and it's all very well trodden ground. You'll be familiar with this; you'll have heard this before. So he talks, for example, of the left's changing social base, uh, different forms of organization, and so on. So you know, just to, just to characterize the article quickly before we discuss a couple of these in, in more depth, uh, he looks at, for example, how the left social base has changed from the working class to the people, Um, and he gives the example of the Chilean constitution, which has uh, which stipulates, you know, that it's a, a plurinational state. Uh, now, of course, <laughs> this is a, a constitution that was rejected. So it already does point to some of the contradictions of this move uh, towards uh, away from the working class and towards the people or even a, a particularly pluralistic understanding of what the people means. Um Instruments, looking at forms of organization, how the left has shifted from the party uh, to the network. Um, there were notes that the the post-organization politics of today um, shows how far off the sense of gaining state power still is, um, which is in contrast to the movement politics of, of 68. Um, I, I did want to dwell on one of these axes um, in a little bit more depth because we're not going to kind of explore all of them, as I said. It's been explored uh, in many other places, including in our book, The End of the End of History, uh, and many other places besides. One uh, point, I think, is uh, with regard to the modes of the left. So it's shift from representative democracy to media communications and participatory democracy. Let me just quote from this, and you guys can uh, then come in and respond. The 21st century left sets out from a much more unqualified embrace of democracy to cool. In the indignados, um, for example, uh, emphasize deliberative, democracy participatory, if mainly digital democracy, usually rejecting the structures of representation and leadership. So how should we understand the millennial left's, uh, quote unquote, unqualified embrace of democracy, if that's indeed what it is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's. Um, if we're talking about the millennial left's um, unqualified opposition to democracy, I think that's the right way to, to put it. Um, the... It's difficult not to hear to talk about, you know, to talk about Brexit as the as the clearest example. I know it's not just all about complaining about left remainers, but <clears throat> here you had a kind of ruptural possibility, um, if you want to put it in that way. And you know, who would who was a most um, invested in foreclosing this opportunity? It was indeed the left remainers. So I think it's a. I think this is the. There are two things which I think. Uh, Thurborn gets wrong in this table and this is this is the one of them but I don't think it's the main one I think actually that point about the social base so actually he says main addressee slash base and I think this is important kind of I don't want us to talk in this this elision or this kind of combining these two things because in the case of the 20th century left the the addressee and the base were the same the working class was yeah, the, that's a good point um the subject and the object if you want to put it in that way um but the in the 21st century left i don't think that's true i think the claims uh things were addressed on behalf to the people on behalf of a you know small a smaller group of middle class or professional managerial class or or whatever but that's always but I been think the case it is, that's always been the
2: case no, that the left has been think in, think so. that,
0: that it's intellectuals addressing themselves to the working class so no and, that's not true because you had so.
2: trade union you know kind of genuine um kind of um representatives of organized labor trade union barons, um, the upper stratum of um, the labor bureaucracy, you know, and also the beneficiary, you know, who were also the political beneficiaries of that kind of um, upward mobility, I suppose.
1: I guess you don't want to be too like nostalgic and say everything was fine in the 20th century and we had good, honest kind of working class vehicles for good honest working class politics or whatever. But I think it is an important, um, he he sort of accepts that face value and I think there's lots of things about the um, the ways of functioning, the kind of um, main instruments, all this sort of thing, which you can, to a greater extent, take more at face value because you're describing how, um, you know, these political programs are pushed forward. But if you're talking about like whose interests is this actually in, who's being addressed and who's, the, who's being mobilized, um, then you can't take it at face value. And I think the fact that he does that kind of is because it's the foundation, it distorts the whole edifice that's on top of it. So I feel like this is the you don't want to just say you don't want to read past a certain part in an article because you disagree with like one of the claims. But I think it is fairly foundational. And I don't I don't think it I think it does undermine some of the like the rest of what he's he does because it means that he he just take continues to take everything at face value rather than be a bit more um critical potentially.
2: So I would I mean, I agree with George and I'd add uh, just a couple of things there. So I think the it's you know, I'd agree it's not an, the idea it's an unqualified embrace of democracy. What he's really talking about is a shift from representative democracy to other kind of forms of democracy, the kinds of forms of democracy that tend to work more in the interests of middle class people who like to you know kind of chatter around in seminar rooms or endless meetings and, you know, um, or kind of um, have been, you know, have uh, had graduate seminars about the Agora and imagine that kind of, that is the model for um, modern politics. So it's a, it's a hostility, you know. There isn't an unqualified embrace of democracy. There's a, an embrace of a certain kind of democracy, and it's not accidental that it came with, as George kind of um, suggested, a hostility to the nation state as the vehicle for that kind of politics. Because representative democracy still remains kind of bound up with it. So the NGO left of Porto Alegre, as well as the um, the left of that was uh, you know that plumped for European Union um that is part of that shift away from representative democracy the other thing is you know i don't accept the the idea that the you know that this um change in social base from working class to people was an innovation now that was kind of the roots of that lie deep in the 20th century you know i mean you can trace that back to um the stalinist um accommodation to or um accommodation to the liberal liberal bourgeoisie with the foundation of the popular fronts, right? So the popular front politics of the mid-20th century, I think, is the root of that shift, right? So all of this, I mean, it seems to me like there is, uh, again, I mean, George said, you know, in a survey on this scale, it's inevitable there are are things you're going to disagree with and it feels churlish occasionally to pick holes in a survey that's so ambitious. But nonetheless, I mean, there are certain things which I think are just kind of... um, fundamentally flawed and that, uh, you know, when you're unwilling to kind of see the roots of some of the claims that you make as lying deeper, then you're not going to be able to claim as much as you think you are.
0: I mean, I agree on your point about about populism or the the addressing to the people rather than the working class. As to the the question of democracy, I think actually you understate, or rather your picture is a little bit too drawn from um, the British left or maybe even kind of Western European left, because the defense of democracy to occur is very much a feature of the left and it's a a limitation of it. It is even a defense of representative democracy, along with, if we can, some participatory innovations here and there. particularly in term, internal ones into in the organizations of the left more than um, being things which are uh, broadened out to society as a whole. Um, but you know I think here you can see the reliance on a defense of bourgeois democracy in itself in the limitations of contemporary anti-fascism, which is a, a major um, plank of the contemporary left, such as it is. Um, there, there's a defense of democracy, um, with very little pointing beyond it. It's a defense of the current institutions of democracy, um, against the, the threat posed by the reactionary right. And I think I mean I think that's a limitation uh, of it. But I I, I don't think it's not
2: anti fascism is author- is one of the authoritarian aspects of the contemporary left not one of its democratic moments but
0: it's a defense of democracy it's a defense of the institutions of contemporary democracy we might think that those institutions are not democratic enough but uh they it is still a defense of of congress of it's a defense of the the status quo
2: i don't think it's a defense of democracy anti-fascism is at least in domestic politics is consistently mobilized to check popular demands and to dissolve majoritarianism
0: again again very much a european picture um I think again it's it that's oh, that sorry. that is such being a, too close to, I think that's a reflection of you being and too close. Part to, of the world. That's that's in your kind of like London bubble PMC left. Um and, oh, yeah, and therefore you filled, amplify yeah, that. that. Not, amplify not that about, to to the rest France of the world,
2: or Italy, or Germany. Yeah, no, of course not. Those are but small countries. Phil small isn't,
0: no, no, this, this is. I think he's
2: part here. of the London PMC. He's part of the. They are not the rural. They, they are not. They are not small countries, country, right? PMC. They are not small but,
0: countries. But, but, but this is this is very much a global overview. He's, he spends far more time discussing India, for example, than anything in, in, in across Western Europe, most likely, and certainly more than in any specific uh, European country. So I think it's worth. Um, at least acknowledging that the kind of cultural and social structure and tendencies and everything else are rather different um, elsewhere. Even if there's, even if the the big picture question of of the absence of a no, I'm happy movement to is the, is the I'm same. I'm happy
2: to obviously. I'm happy to talk about the you know developments at the global level, but anti-fascism isn't like you know kind. Of... Kind of the um the significant a significant aspect in Indian politics, the way that it has been deployed in Western European politics, that's true. But then that undercuts what you were saying as well, right? So you know the um the place you're saying that this is kind of that the left is too attached to democracy, and that's part of its problem. Is you're talking as if it's you know um the early nineteen twenties or something like?
0: No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm that's my the implication is- of what you're saying. No, no, it, it's it's not that it's too you know too wedded to democracy. I think that it's it's uh necessary defensive. I mean, I, you know, this was obviously seen in, in Brazil most recently with the election, but you can take any kind of election between a right wing populist and a kind of a mainstream or center left figure, um, and it replicates itself. It's the left defends the institutions of of uh. Of bourgeois democracy as they are um, in, an, in a rather uncritical manner. So it is it, it ends up losing its capacity to speak to people's desire for uh, rebellion, for an alternative, um, for the impasses of the status quo, because it ends up defaulting to the status quo. And the name of that status quo remains democracy, even if um, it's a very hollowed out democracy, as um, we have discussed uh, any number of times.
1: It sounds maybe that like you're generalizing from the Brazilian case a bit too much there then Alex. I mean, what we really need to to search for is a kind of gammon internationalist synthesis um, where we do take into I mean, this is one of the challenges, right, of doing this kind of um, the left in the in the world is this, because if there are two situations where fundamentally different kind of valences apply to this question of democracy, then how do you how do you capture that um in a in a table and i will st- stick by the value of of tables um in this kind of in this kind of context i mean yeah it might just I'm be not, that Sorry, i'm Dan. not
2: sure you so i'm not sure you're right about about that alex right so you know i think you know that might be the case in in brazil right but in america for instance it wasn't so much democracy that they were saying you know that they were defending the trumpian challenge right they're defending the constitution the republic right the institutions of the american state so democracy you know they consistently you know that wasn't something that was front and center and certainly not you know um certainly not in the case of britain where um you know that was obviously a harder sell given the fact of um the way the majority swung consistently so anyway i mean i think the point is like I'm not quite sure that the, um, you know, that the left's, I mean, I accept the fact that the left has trouble kind of speaking to the, um speaking to the instinct and the taste for, or the popular taste for change, you know, which is very kind of prevalent at the moment. That is certainly true, but I don't think that's because that is because they're so kind of attached to um the institutions and practices of democracy.
0: Well, so we'll have to, we'll have to move on. I I, I think it, I think it, rather is. I mean, that, that's been my experience. I suspect it's a, it's similar in, um, I don't know, Turkey, for example, where the Turkish left's response uh, area has been in those terms, especially in, in countries where the democracy is less consolidated, where it's seen as much more something to be defended rather than taken as a given or rather taken as a sort of, um, you know, ambiance or milieu or something in the way that uh, it's treated in Western Europe. But to move on, I think there's one point which um, Therborn makes about the left, which is that it um, effectively continues to seek answers in social democratic policy. And I think I would put emphasis there on, on policy even more than social democracy. Um, effectively, it seemed to suggest to me in, in, in reading this that to a certain extent, the left lacks a politics, that it's really just cultural attitudes plus social democratic policy without any real politics. Uh do you agree with that?
1: I mean it's You an need interest... to say
2: more, don't you?
1: I mean, well not no not necessarily. I guess the the I think it kind of all comes back to that question of the 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 kind of the, the base and the addressees. Like you do have a politics if your um class basis is is relatively narrower than what the lefts used to be. Um and you're still and you're trying to make claims which are wider. Um, so you you kind of have a you know PMC left claim to the whole claim to the people in general. <clears throat> I mean, you, you if you want to be super vulgar about it, then the, the um, vulgar Marxist, then you would say like, well, it's the the politics is putting forward the class interest of this group and whatever is good for them. You you kind of um, are constrained by needing to make claims to the to whole of the people, but that's essentially once you strip away sufficient layers of kind of ideological um, camouflage, that's really what's going on here. Um, that, that would be the the kind of the, the the most, not most cynical, but the most like m- maybe m- vulgar materialist um, analysis of this, I think.
0: Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, even to take that specific case, I guess it's, there is social democratic policy, which speaks to working class right, um, which the left constantly talks about in terms of being anti-austerity, defending social services, um, trying nationalizing, um, you know, utilities and things like that, right. Um, but of course, I think you're right in your analysis, because ultimately, that becomes superseded by demands which play much more to uh, the kind of middle strata of society, which is, you know, things like um, debt relief, not for um all debt or various other forms of debt, but specifically uh university you know debt incurred for university education. So it's always a kind of you know aimed at the middle strata of society. So um I guess in that regard, yes, that it does there is an um kind of the left kind of middle class um kind of the activist base of the middle uh, of the left ends up seeing its interests predominate um but i don't think that means that it doesn't have a kind of social democratic policies but i think that's a that's a weakness of it in terms of its mere defence of of the status quo ante um and in that and in that regard because it is it's a, it's a, merely policies there's no real vehicle for pursuing that in the form of uh, the trade unions of old um so so all the structures that used to be involved in what was social democratic politics, reformist politics, or whatever, um, are gone. So you just have policy, and then you have a kind of uh, subcultural milieu, which is the left, which also backs these policies. So that's, I guess, what I'm getting at in saying that it mm-hmm. there is no real politics there.
1: So it it kind of
0: makes me think about this this article in general.
1: Like, if if you have the same theoretical framework, but this, the the like the the second half or the second part of it was very critical or was trying to um instead of endorse all these various sort of movements and and um uh trends but instead was very critical then this might be the sort of point that could come out of the article and be quite quite useful quite insightful um to say here's here's what's changed and here's how all of these new things represent um a discontinuity um like not essentially an abandoning of the idea of the left but some inversion of it or some change of 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 what it previously had um had as its central uh, ideas or its central kind of values or whatever but because I th- I don't think Thurborn's probably willing to to, to do that he still supports the, the left in its current um its current guys I think that's you know you end up with all these sort of <clears throat> things which end up getting papered over to mm, a greater or lesser yeah. extent maybe yeah I mean it's um it doesn't set out to be a critique of the left and so and maybe if it had then some of the the kind of the building at the beginning of the different um historical but even kind if it's of even if yeah. it's not
0: a critique, it could be a kind of working through of where the left is, which then would have some critical remarks. But um, And it proposes to be a kind of working through, I think, and it doesn't, um, I think, doesn't deliver on that. Okay, so one final point um, to close this off, even, you know, if we already recognize that the left lacks socialism as a goal and revolution as a horizon, um, we do live in very turbulent times. And there were notes that there's more protest than ever. Uh, But in a footnote recognizes that this includes protests that's politically ambiguous, as well as that which is pretty explicitly on the right. Um, Therborn goes on to note that in each instance um, of these protests, the left's great lacuna was a vision uh, of transformative power or a strategy for winning it. That is perhaps the most important difference with the 20th century left reformist as well as revolutionary. So it's that absence of vision when these protests do emerge. Uh, Similarly, Thierborn notes that the power to reconfigure politics in the North Atlantic is mainly with the xenophobic and the nationalist right. And broadening out to the global south, he comments that deindustrialization, emigration to the US, and the weakening or abandonment of uh, the working class by the left has opened up space claimed by far-right entrepreneurs. And I think that's a picture that I I personally uh, agree with. If rebellion then is primarily found on the right today, does that force a reassessment of what the left is. If the left is uh, conservative, perhaps conformist, um, or merely just defensive, um, does it make it a left? Um, What do we make of the fact of a genuinely, I don't want to say, yeah, maybe a genuinely popular right, of a right that is uh, rebellious and is seen as anti-system, even if we recognize that ultimately it is in no way anti-capitalist or doesn't really... um, significantly challenge any structures of power beyond the kind of um who the cultural gatekeepers are perhaps um nevertheless a lot of the um you know kind of energy and turbulence that exists today ends up being captured by forces um which look more like the right than they do the left
1: yeah so before we were recording i think phil you made the point that thirdborn you know he's a, he's a 68er essentially and he and he can't Sort of understand why somebody would would vote for trump it, it it you know it makes it made me think that his book what does the ruling class do when it rules you know i think this is a really well i, I remember reading it and it was a little a little while ago and um, but i remember thinking this is a really good bit of sociology he's a good like a you know he's one of the big name sociologists at least on on the left but how how can you just not get your head around this fairly important fact of of like of modern politics that there is there is a reason why all these people voted for trump or brexit it's not that this kind of grand conspiracy they're not all all idiots um but just to you know that that what does the ruling class do when it rules but just to go back to that for for a second the basic answer is that the ruling class reproduces itself it's not about the character of its its rule it's about the sociological consequences of this political process and i thought yeah that's that's um you know that's a pretty good insight and it it's a pretty good way to analyze know what the ruling class is and if he'd applied that question to today i wonder how he would potentially have talked about some of these um uh processes for example it makes me think of michael lint's book um where he's talking about how the how the managerial overclass reproduces itself like how these processes of credentialization are part of of the ruling class um um reproducing itself in american society anyway that's a bit of a a bit of a, a digression but i think it it um it's one of the weaknesses of the of the essay as a whole um which probably comes through a lot of it that just this um like there must the feeling that there must be this um sinister explanation or account for why um i think you could on the like last page when he's talking about in the UK and the US, what happened to socialism in the 21st century, I right? Corbyn and, and Sanders, it was um crushed by a vicious orchestrated campaign. Um in in and it's like this is one account of of why Corbyn lost or why Bernie lost and different in, in each case, but it's it's I think it takes too much much at face value. There's not enough class analysis, and that's I guess sort of what I'd expected going into the piece a little bit. I don't know if that does answer the question. Or or not, but it it's um well, yeah, let, I think it was a limitation and then
0: we'll, we'll we'll take that on.
2: So I would I mean I'd say a, I suppose a couple of things. Um I mean I hope, you know, as, as a parent, like I don't, I'm not particularly taken with um with Thurborn's argument, but I think even accepting it on its own terms, this is um the nub of it right where he says that it's the absence of a vision of transformative power or a strategy for winning it and so he sees that this is the great kind of weakness of the of the 21st century left by comparison with the 20th century left um but is unwilling to kind of it seems draw the conclusions from that so he still wants to do this balance sheet approach of like you know pachamama wins over here this person loses over there and you know kind of it's all kind of um it up here and there but without that it seems to me if he's willing to concede the fact that there is this absence of vision for transformation um then it's how is it even meaningful really to talk about kind of gains and losses in that context mm-hmm. if there's no real vision for what a you know like a different kind of society would look like right um by comparison with the 20th century left then how is it meaningful to talk in these terms you know and that is just kind of taking for granted, the case that he puts himself. So that's one point. The other element I'd say is like the, um, I think the, uh, again, I mean, it goes back to the question, I think of political representation. Um, The people that he's kind of castigating as um, uh, belonging to, you know, being the xenophobic and nationalist right. I think a lot of those people are potentially biddable. And the reason that they go for the populist right is because they're, um, they're, uh, rallying around political structures where they feel as if there is, you know, which are more responsive, um, and which are closer to them in ways that um other kind of political structures like I don't know, NGO meetings in Porto Alegre. You know, so where are where else are people um you know where else are people meant to go? And that takes, you know, so that takes us to or it takes me at least to the final point I wanted to make in response to this is the this question of um, you know, something that is he's not um a dimension which is it seems oblivious to at least in this piece is the fact that the you know what is the um relationship between the left and capital um right in the sense yeah. that you know you can make the case that a lot of the you know even with the extreme end of say hart and negri's um empire you know, this was a common criticism made of Hartenegri back at the back in the day that they were neoliberals, right? And there is some justice to the critique. In their haste to um in their haste to kind of talk about political struggles of the global level and abandoning the nation state, they effectively you know, took for granted and even naturalized um, the kind of vision of late global, of what we now know as late global neoliberalism, and all the ideology that the left is so favored with, and this is a, you know, kind of the talking point which has been raised before on Bunga, but say like, you know, woke ideology as the ideology of the corporate um, human resources department, there are all sorts of ways in which the ideology of the contemporary left lends itself to... um, consolidating the market to expanding new markets to demolishing labor opposition um, to dividing people right um, and uh, dissolving away majorities and so that question of how the left is complicit with the dynamics of capitalism is something which she doesn't really consider at all mm-hmm. um, and so without being able to consider it you're unable to account for how people have also turned away from the left right particularly once organized labor is defeated
0: yeah, I, I think that's very well put, actually, Phil, and it is something that was lacking from Therborn's analysis. Hopefully, um, on Bungo, we have and uh, are and will continue to uh, provide more thoroughgoing critiques of uh, of the left, um, not with the aim of just making ourselves um, seem uh, smug and smart, um, very much uh, to the contrary, um, but just to identify the possibilities for some rupture today. Um, so that is uh it for this. Let us know what you thought. I'm sure um, you will uh, undoubtedly have many comments on this, uh listeners. And uh, if you're not a subscriber uh, at patreon.com slash BungaCast, we always have very lively uh, discussions and debates in response to the episodes, which then we take up and... Uh, regurgitate if that's not too foul a way to put it <laughs> in our uh monthly alpha bonus bonus episodes with where we dialogue with our listeners so do sign up if you're interested it's five dollars a month and you get two original episodes um and uh, even if you don't it'd be nice if you left us a review uh anywhere you get your podcast if you give us five stars that'd be great um have our own little five star movement okay we'll leave that there uh catch you next time bye-bye <laughs> We're
1: going to regurgitate questions, are we? like a like a mama bird throwing up into our listeners mouths
2: yeah really fucking beautiful image there for our listeners alex <laughs>
0: yeah you could, I uh, like re- digest digest would have been better than regurgitate <laughs> but you, digest then regurgitate yeah exactly is, uh, yeah